Good morning. It's good to see you here this morning. Tis the season to celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. And along with that comes shopping and presents and long lines and lights and cutting down a perfectly good tree and dragging it in our houses and Christmas cookies and Christmas parties even. I had the distinct pleasure this past week of celebrating Christmas with our adult volunteers for student ministry. Both Tuesday and Wednesday evening, we had high school and middle school volunteers come and celebrate. And we have great volunteers at this place. From from birth all the way up through, we love our volunteers and love it when you guys get plugged in. And I say this in love, there's a special quirkiness about student ministry volunteers. And I I think they would agree with that. Because at this party, we had a white elephant gift exchange. And I want to show you a few of the things that showed up. And um, you might think that quirky isn't strong enough of a word. So here's here's what came in this white elephant gift exchange. Um, You know, come on. Yeah. Maybe... You, when you go on Facebook, you want to vote this for Pastor Steve, because that's a beauty. It even has lights and bells on the sleeves. Now, this was my gift. This is what I walked away with. It's just a squishy fish. You know, nothing big with that. Love it. No, no harm, no foul there. Um, here's some other things. A white elephant. <laughs> clever, clever. That's, that's good. The original hair mayonnaise, right? I hadn't realized that there was a bunch of knockoffs that you actually had to call this the original. But yes, hair mayonnaise. And if after the service you would like to use some, you are more than welcome. Uh, This one's brutal. It's called How to Get Married After 35. (laughs) A game plan for love. On the back it says, your future husband is out there. Here's how to find him. That one's a little scary. Uh, Trev, you can have this back after the service. Um, 50 ways to kill a slug and salt. That was one of the great gifts that came. And then we start to see a a theme developing. Um, The superhero potty time book. This is a great one. I would love to read this to you, but I won't. A bedpan and a roll of TP for when you're on the go is what the note said, but I know, I told you, quirky. Toilet time golf so that you can practice your putting while you're, you understand. And uh, this is a great one. This is... Like a light filled with gummy worms. I, I don't know. I don't even know what to say about that. But that one showed up as well. And, and one of the great ones that was there is when all of our leaders came in, they brought their packages and they put them in this, in this pile. And then we went and we had dinner and we played games and we laughed. And, and it took a long time. And at the end of the evening, we got back to this white elephant gift exchange. And so that's where, you know, you pass out numbers and everybody chooses a gift and then you can steal or grab a new one. Well, about five or six people in, uh, one of our female volunteers grabbed this huge box and she dragged it over to her seat and there was a big sign on it that said, handle with care. 
fragile. And so she starts taking off the tissue paper and as she's peeling open this box, the box moves and she screams, ah, there's something alive in there. And sure enough, when she opened it up, there was a cat. (laughs) One of our volunteers had put their cat in the box. (laughs) And that was... That was the white elephant gift. White elephant gift exchanges are interesting. Actually, the term derives, the white elephant derives from the kings of Siam, which is now Thailand. When they had a noble that was being particularly obnoxious or annoying, they would gift them with a white elephant. And it seemed like a gift, but it wasn't really a gift because white elephants were sacred and you had to take care of them and people could come and worship them and you had to feed it well. And so really it was a possession whose cost is out of proportion to its usefulness. And so it seems like a gift, but really it was meant as kind of a slam. And we know that it's morphed a little bit since then. It's it's not really that as much as it's just kind of a curious or humorous gift that you get that has very little practical value. And that your first thought is, who can I give this to? Right? How can I re-gift this? You know that you have given a great white elephant gift when the person's response is, what am I going to do with this? Then you know that you have succeeded. And we're going to talk about white elephant gifts this morning. You see, we're firmly entrenched in the Christmas season. We have been since mid-October. And we're finally going to lean in in our sermon series. We're going to take a break from our Choices series where we've been studying First and Second Samuel. And we're going to lean into Advent and Our series is going to be called White Elephant Christmas, and we're going to be looking at some of the white elephant gifts in the Christmas story. And as we know, at Christmas, Jesus is the ultimate gift. Jesus is the reason that we celebrate Christmas. And so we live our lives in praise and in gratitude for him, for this gift that is given. And we want to return to him all that we are. All of our time and our talents and our resources, we just want to lay at his feet as a gift to him. But if we're honest with ourselves, there are times that we feel like the white elephant gift. That when we come to Jesus and we're like, okay, I give myself as a gift to you, Jesus is going, really? Is there a gift receipt with that? Or like, hey, Gabriel, I got you something. It's right here. That maybe God is saying, what am I going to do with that? You see, oftentimes we feel like the gift of ourselves is is quirky and funny and of little ethical value and easily discarded. But that is not the case. You see, today we're going to look at some of the white elephant gifts in the story of Jesus. In the family tree of Jesus, we're going to find all kinds of different people. Now, usually when we begin the Christmas series, we begin in Matthew or Luke. Those are where those stories are told. And we begin with Zechariah and Elizabeth, or we begin with Joseph and Mary or the angel Gabriel. But this morning, we're going to begin a little bit earlier than that in the story, about 42 generations earlier. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter one, verse one, the beginning of the New Testament. If you want to grab one out of the pew there, it's on page 1513. Now, we know that 2 Timothy 3.16 says this. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach. 
Now, this is a verse that pastors use when they are going to preach on a passage that's obscure. This is like their go-to, like, hey, guys, I can preach on this because all scripture, and it's true, all scripture is useful, but we don't always think that way. Like when you're reading through the Old Testament, you don't get to numbers and go, wow, this is good stuff. I'm going to read every one of these. I'm going to figure, I'm going to do some math. You skip over that part. And typically when you get to the New Testament, you get to the genealogy and you're like, oh, wow, I don't know who they are. Let's get to the story. Show me the story. So it seems to us like an odd way to begin the New Testament, the genealogy. But to a first century Jew, it was the perfect way to begin the New Testament. You see, Matthew was writing to the Jews and he was focusing on the fulfillment of the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, he quoted the Old Testament 62 times, far more than any other writer of the Gospels. And his purpose in writing Matthew was to show the Jews that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah. And he was going to use the genealogy and his resurrection to prove his point. That Jesus is the legitimate king. And I'm going to show you why it's all real. And so he begins with the genealogy. He starts with Abraham. He's encompassing all of the Old Testament. And he's saying all of this, every bit of this leads up to the most crucial and pivotal moment in the history of the world. It leads to Jesus. And so he begins with the genealogy. Because genealogy is resume. Genealogy is resume. Part of the importance to a first century Jew would be to make sure that the lineage of Jesus was pure, that there wasn't any races different from the Jewish race in the lineage. Because if Jesus wasn't a pure Jew, then he could not be the promised Messiah, and he would actually cease to be a part of the family of God, even in their thinking. Genealogies were used to show that you had awesome in your blood. And historians tell us that Herod the Great, who was king of the region at the time, he actually purged his genealogy because the Jews didn't accept him as their rightful king because he was half Jew and he was half Edomite. He was from the line of Esau. And so they were like, you're not pure. You don't deserve to be the king. So Herod went in and he totally destroyed all of the genealogy so that there would be no record that he wasn't the legitimate king. And he put himself forward that way. But it's interesting. We meet Herod the Great in Matthew chapter two, but already in chapter one, he's telling us this is the legitimate king. And before we look at who's who in the list, I want to remind you this as well. The gospel is not good advice. It's good news. And we need to remember that. You see, good advice is counsel on how we should live our lives, but news is an event that happened that we need to respond to. Gospel literally means news that brings joy. And it was used in those days to, to herald something big. It wasn't just regular news, it was big news. And so there's all kinds of stories about the Romans sending out this gospel message to people because an event has happened that has changed people's status forever. That's what gospel was. And so that's why Matthew doesn't begin with once upon a time. And he doesn't begin with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. He begins with genealogy. You see, first and foremost, Christmas isn't about how we should live. Christmas isn't about an event that took place. It's a birth in a barn. And how are we supposed to respond to it? And the genealogy is to say, this is true. Here's the history that led up to it. It's true. It's real. So let's look at who's who in the family tree of Jesus. Starting in verse 1. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. We begin with the big three, with the the patriarchs, the founding fathers, if you will. And God comes to Abraham and he says in Genesis chapter 12, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. You will be a blessing to others. I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who treat you with contempt. All families on earth will be blessed because of you. And Abraham believed. Abraham had faith. And he was praised for the faith that he did have. Now, Abraham wasn't perfect. You know, in chapter 12, there's this episode where he tries to pawn his wife off as a sister so Pharaoh doesn't kill him and all this kind of stuff. He didn't, he didn't live perfect, but he was a great man of faith. And Isaac was great. And Jacob was great. And Jacob had some issues too. But, you know, these are kind of the big guys. And then we get to, to verse three. It says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now let's pause here for a minute. Matthew mentions a woman in the genealogy. This is a big deal. This would have been a big deal to the Jews. There's five women listed in the genealogy, and this would have been scandalous and stunning. Because Jewish men, actually devout ones, had a prayer that they prayed every morning. They prayed this, God, thank you that I'm not a Gentile. Thank you that I'm not a slave. And thank you that I'm not a woman. I mean, can you imagine if that was a part of our service time? Like, if we just came to this point and I was like, okay, all the men stand up. We're going to pray and give thanks, right? I'm sure Laura wouldn't lead that time. That's probably not her. <laughs> but who was Tamar? And, and what's this story about? You see, Judah was Jacob's fourth son. And Judah had some sons. And one of his sons married Tamar. Now, this son passed away, and Tamar didn't have any children, so she married another one of Judah's sons, and the Bible says that he was evil and wouldn't even allow her to have a child, and he passed away as well, and Tamar still had no children. So Genesis 38 kind of tells us this pretty sketchy story where Tamar dresses up like a prostitute, and she waits on the side of the road, and she gets picked up by her father-in-law and has twin boys. Trust me, you don't put that on a resume. That's not one of the stories where you're like, yes, the Messiah is coming, but you need to know early on, here's part of the story. That just doesn't seem right. Look at verse five. I want to call this guy Salmon, but I don't know. We're just going to call him Salmon today. We live in the Pacific Northwest. We can do that. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. So here we have Boaz. Boaz's mom was Rahab. We meet Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. Joshua is sending out two spies into Jericho to scout out the city before they approach it, before they attack that city. And as the two spies are going throughout, they end up at the home of Rahab. Now, Rahab's a prostitute. Rahab's a Canaanite woman. And she tells these spies, the people of the city know that you're here and they're trying to kill you. You need to hide. I will hide you. And she does that. But she tells them this. She says, the Lord your God is the supreme God. She doesn't know much about God at all, but she knows that their God is the one true God and she starts to put her faith in him. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 11 lists her in this hall of faith. It says, It's by faith that Rahab, the prostitute, was not destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God. So she was this Canaanite woman 
who was a prostitute who put her faith in God. Again, is that a resume story? That verse also lists Ruth. Ruth was great. She married Boaz, but Ruth was a Moabite. Moabites were despised. The race of people began in Genesis chapter 19, and it's another sketchy story where Lot and his wife and his daughters are fleeing the city as it's being destroyed, and his wife turns around, and she turns to salt, and as they continue on, his daughters have no heirs, and they get him drunk, and that's how they get heirs, and all God's people said, ew. (laughs) And we have the Moabites. And the Moabites were despised. Deuteronomy chapter 23 says, as long as you live, you must never promote the welfare and prosperity of the Moabites. And yet here she is. She's in the resume. She's in this family tree. Look at verse six. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. And you're like, finally, people I know. David, King David, a man after God's own heart who saw Bathsheba and had an adulterous affair and then arranged the murder of her husband. That's a tough one. And we know that David's at fault and we know Bathsheba was taking a bath on the roof with a view of the palace. That's in the story. That's part of the resume. Look at verse 10. You get into some of the kings now. It says, Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Ammon. Ammon was the father of Josiah. Hezekiah was a great king. He he was the best. The Bible says that Hezekiah trusted the Lord. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before or after his time. He remained faithful to the Lord in everything. Like, this was the guy. He was great. And then Manasseh, his son, turned away, and he was an evil king, and he started worshiping idols. And then Manasseh's son, Ammon, Ammon was like, yeah, my dad was bad, but I can do him one better. I'll be horrible. And he was the worst of the kings. And he took people way aside to worship everything. And then his son was Josiah. And Josiah was like, what we're doing is wrong. We have to turn this ship around. And he destroyed all the the idols and the altars and brought people back into this relationship with the one true God. And so you see this all throughout this genealogy where there's this like good and then not so good stories and great and not so great stories. And this is how it goes all the way through. And, And you might be thinking a few thoughts as you hear some of these stories. One of them might be this. Jesus' family is as dysfunctional as my family. Like, finally a family that I fit in. The family of Jesus. I mean, as I read through this story, I was wondering, what morally bankrupt character from the Old Testament is not listed here? Because that's what it seems like. It's almost as if God loves everyone, and everyone has a part in this story. It's almost as if God gives us all an opportunity to be a part of the family. I mean, look at all the white elephants in that story, right? In the most important genealogy in the history of the world, it's full of white elephants. Gentiles, murderers, adulterers. There's some great men and women who are striving after God And there's some men and women who are struggling mightily. And as I read this, I couldn't help but think, maybe Matthew loved beginning his gospel this way. 
Maybe Matthew loved the idea that grace wins. Maybe Matthew loved the idea that there is room in the story of Jesus for all different kinds of people. Because Matthew was a tax collector and he would have been hated by the Jews. Basically, he was employed by Rome. Rome was oppressing the Jewish people and Rome said to him, here's what, here's what you can do. You need to collect the tax that we desire and anything above and beyond that you can collect is yours and you have our military support to do it. Go get them. So Matthew would have been a traitor. He would have been hated by his people. And yet Jesus comes along and says, follow me. And Matthew chose to be a disciple. It's amazing. You see, the list of people here would be people that would be excluded by society, and yet they're brought together by Jesus. The genealogy is the history of grace. The genealogy is this idea that grace Wins That it's not so much what we do for Jesus, but what he has done for us. And that's why we have prostitute and king sitting down at the table as equals. Because Jesus redeems the stories and grace wins. And yet somehow this truth gets lost in our lives. We always think somehow that, that that's different, that anybody in the Bible is different. They weren't even maybe exactly human or like us. You know, those are biblical characters. That's not me. And so we begin to move in circles of, of shame and despair and, and we attempt to prop ourselves up and we attempt to do things to make ourselves look better because we just wrestle with some of these things that we've done. We wrestle with our history. We wrestle with our past. And we say, I can't believe I did that. I'm such a loser. Why would I do that? What if someone found out about that? I can't ever let anybody find out about that. Who am I to think that I can stand up and lead and offer ideas and, and serve when I have all of this baggage going on? I don't belong. And shame begins to win. This past week, I was reading a book called The Gifts of Imperfection by Brene Brown, and she talks about shame, and here's what she says. She says, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. You ever feel that way? That we've just done so much that we can't be loved and we don't belong. That if people found out about our stories, they would somehow distance ourselves from them. And we believe that the things that define us most are the things that we've done wrong. Even if those experiences are just a small sliver of our lives, we believe that those are the experiences that cover us, and eventually they're going to catch up to us and overtake us and drag us down. We're ashamed of ourselves, and we feel like Jesus feels the same way. We feel like we don't fit in this story. We're the, we're the white elephant gifts that people look at and they go, oh, that's funny, I have no use for that. And because we have those shameful feelings, we begin to compensate for them. We begin to try and overcome them. Brene Brown says this further in her book. We spend too much time trying to distance ourselves from the parts of our lives that don't fit with who we think we are supposed to be. We want to stand outside of our story and hustle for our worthiness by constantly performing, perfecting, pleasing, and proving. And take a look at those four words at the end. Does that describe us? Performing, perfecting, pleasing, 
improving. I'll be worthy when I do these things. I'll feel better when I lose that weight, when I gain the acceptance of my parents, when I overcome this addiction, when I fix that relationship, when I make partner, when I can do all of these things in my life and look like I'm not even trying. I can work for it. I can prove myself. And how much time do we spend trying to prop ourselves up, trying to feel worthy by our actions and trying to make other people look at us and think that we are doing well? It's, it's called the Facebook post, right? Hashtag blessed. Hashtag living the dream. And that's what we do. But you know what? That false facade carries with it some serious problems because that's not who we really are. A few months ago, my car broke down. It didn't break down all the way. It just broke down intermittently, you know, just annoying enough that I'd be driving down the street and it would break down. And then I'd pull off to the side. And then like half an hour later, it would start again and I could keep going. And it was very annoying when I had to get places like work and school and stuff like that. So I called a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, and I, I knew he had an old truck. And I was like, hey, can I borrow the old truck for a while while I figure out how to blow up this car that I'm currently driving? And he's like, sure, come on, come get it. So I had a friend take me out to his house. And when I showed up at his house, in his driveway was this beautiful vehicle. It was not the old truck. It was a vehicle that was and is well beyond my means. It had a heated steering wheel. <laughs> I didn't even know those existed. And I was like, no, there's no way. I'm not driving that. No, I don't want to. Okay. So I started driving this amazing vehicle around. I picked up my daughter from school, and she was like, Dad, when'd you get this? This is awesome. What's this button do? It was great. Now, I, I kind of run in, in several different circles. And, and the circle that I run in in church, anytime someone would see me in that vehicle, I got this response. What are you doing in that? Can I see the youth budget? I want to know what happened. How'd you get that thing? I'm driving down River Road, literally, and somebody that I know from church pulls up next to me and looks over and then back down and then goes. And I'm like, it's a loner. I've never wanted to apologize for a vehicle so much in my life. But then on the, on the home front in my neighborhood, I had more people talk to me than I ever had before. My wife and I would be out walking the dog and, and neighbors, I didn't even know her neighbors, were like, hey, saw that car in your driveway, nice. And I'm like, okay, I don't know you. My next door neighbor, as he's leaving, he, he, he's just like, hey, great car, your husband's got a great car. All of a sudden I'm fitting in in my neighborhood for a vehicle that isn't mine. My real car is still broken down in the church parking lot. And yet my neighbors think I'm pretty cool. But it wasn't me. It's not me. I wasn't fitting in, really, because of that car. You see, there's a difference between fitting in and belonging. We use those words interchangeably. But actually, fitting in gets in the way of belonging. Fitting in is what you do for approval and acceptance. You see, we know what to wear. We know how to dress. We know how to make people happy. We know what not to mention. We kind of can chameleon our way through our days. Fitting in assesses the situation and then adapts for acceptance. Fitting in is all about performance. 
I can do it. I can be a part of the family. I can make the effort. I can overcome what I've done in my past. Fitting in is different than belonging. Belonging is this. Belonging is understanding who we are. Belonging doesn't come from our actions, whether it's past, present, or future. Belonging only happens when we present our authentic, imperfect selves to Jesus. It happens when we lean in, when we stop performing, and when we place our trust in him. That's how we belong. That's how we're a part of the family. When we put our faith and trust in him, we can't perform our way there. It's not up to us by our efforts to overcome the sin and mistakes of our past. Jesus did that for us. Tim Keller says it this way. Christmas is the end of thinking you are better than someone else because Christmas is telling you that you could never get to heaven on your own. God had to come to you. It is telling you that people who are saved are not those who have arisen through their own ability to be what God wants them to be. Salvation comes to those who are willing to admit how weak they are. That we can't do it on our own. God had to come to us. And I want to tell you something else. God is not ashamed of you. And I want you to hear that. Jesus is not ashamed of you. And you might immediately just back into, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know the mistakes in my past. You don't know my family history. Were you listening when I read the genealogy? Because Jesus redeemed those stories. Look at Hebrews chapter two, verse 11. Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. God is working in your life. In the midst of pain and poor choices, he's working to redeem those things. He did it in the genealogy, and he still does it today. He's doing it in our lives. You don't have to prove yourself to make the team. You don't have to prove yourself to be on the list, to get in the family tree. Jesus did the work for us. February 15th, 2006, in a division title basketball game in New York State, there was a young man named Jason McElwain. An amazing story. I want to show it to you right here. Grace Athena High School in Rochester, New York, has a new most unlikely hero, a special ed student by the name of Jason McElwain. Let's keep it going. Jason is the basketball team manager. For the past couple years, he's been assisting coach Jim Johnson, helping with whatever the team needs. And go! Get him motivated and uh, hand out water and just be enthusiastic. Enthusiastic, to say the least. Despite being born with autism, Jason's father says his son has never had a problem expressing himself at basketball games. You know, I was always concerned that he might get a technical and they lose a game because he, you know, start yelling or whatever. Let's have a hard practice tomorrow, all hour and a half, and let's get ready for Arcadia. Yeah, let's okay. go. One, two, three, two. Because he has been so devoted to the team, for the last game of the season, Coach Johnson decided to let Jason actually suit up. Not to play necessarily, just to let him feel what it's like to wear a jersey. At least that was the plan. 
But with four minutes to go in last week's game, Coach Johnson stood up and pointed to number 52, Jason McElwain. After years of fetching water and toweling off other people's sweat, Jason was actually in a game. His first shot was a 20-footer from the right baseline. Was it close? Did you almost make I just, it? I just airballed it. <laughs> I'm like, just, dear God, please, let's just get him a basket. His second shot missed too, but the third was a charm. A three-point no-doubter. And Jason wasn't done yet. Not by a long shot. If I wasn't there to witness it, I wouldn't have believed it, you know? You caught fire. I just caught fire. I was hot as a pistol. Jason ended up shooting six three-pointers. One right after the other. He had 20 points total, and each time a shot went in, his teammates and the crowd went a little crazier. His last basket, right at the buzzer, created total mayhem. Because he is autistic, Jason says he's used to feeling different, but never this different. Never this wonderful. Steve Hartman, CBS News, Rochester, New York. Isn't that awesome? I've seen that story countless times and I still get choked up. I love that story. I mean, he did not deserve to make the team on his athletic ability, right? He made the team because coach said, I want you on the team. And we love those kind of stories. And those kind of stories are our stories. That's, that's the story of us. And so we need to stop fighting off forgiveness or punishing ourselves for our past, clinging to past mistakes, plus placing crushing expectations upon ourselves. We need to stop thinking that our performance leads to us belonging. Because here at the beginning of the New Testament, in this genealogy, we see the all-encompassing height and depth and breadth and width of the love of Jesus. Where grace wins and we get the opportunity to be a part of the family. I wanna ask just a few questions in closing. And maybe one of these jumps out at you, but do I live like a white elephant gift? Is this how I view myself? Maybe to expand a little bit further, have I let my past regrets disqualify me from my future responsibilities? Have I let past mistakes keep me from current ministry? You see, the names in this list leading up to Christ are to show us that our names can be on the list leading from Christ. How about this next one? Do I treat others like a white elephant gift? Maybe it's not just how you view yourself, it's how you view other people around you. Am I always trying to fit in or do I know that I belong to Jesus? Now we know we're all misfits, but we all fit. It's not based on our performance. It's not based on what we can do ourselves to prop ourselves up to fit in. It's based on the gift that is Jesus Christ. And that's this last one. Have I found freedom and rest in the grace, forgiveness, and truth of Jesus? Maybe you came in here this morning and you've got a dysfunctional family and you feel glad that Jesus looked like that, but you're not a part of that family yet. Would you have the boldness this morning to seek him out 
to seek someone out to pray with you, to go talk to someone about what it means to be in the family of Jesus. Because this genealogy is the history of grace and grace wins. And we have the opportunity to be a part of that family. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opening to the New Testament and all the stories and names that we know and don't know leading up to you. And we thank you that we see that they put their faith in you, so many of them, and you redeemed their past, their stories. And I pray that we would continue to walk in faith and confidence in who you are and the gift that you are and the sacrifice that you made to allow us to become part of your family. And so we worship you because of it. In your name, Jesus, amen.